Ryan, hello. Hello, Julie, and hello, everyone. Welcome to the Environmental Heroes podcast. Um, we're doing a remote intro. We are a remote intro for an interview that was done quite a while ago, back in the days when we were allowed to drive outside of the ACT. Well, we could all move freely <laughs> and um, go and visit people. We went on a long <sighs> country drive. We did. We did. We drove to Kuma um, because we have was even further than Kuma because we wanted to meet an incredibly special person, Charles Massey. So I must confess, I didn't know much about Charles before Ryan suggested we go for a drive. Um, Ryan, on the other hand, was, uh, to use like a proverbial expression, I guess, like a kid in a candy store, <laughs> very, very excited about about meeting his hero. That would be fair to say, hey, Ryan, tell us, tell us how excited you were about meeting Charles. Definitely. I was very excited to meet Charles. So he's a classic writer, farmer, Australian character um, who, yeah, I've just always kind of seemed mystical to me, this guy that ran a four and a half thousand acre sheep farm who was also um, completing his PhD and, as you said, getting up at four in the morning to write a novel about how we can all save the planet. Um, What's not to love? I was super excited. So it was such an inspiring conversation. Um, and like, I mean, we're just so excited to share it with you guys. The interview with Charles Massey. Local environment heroes Saving the trees and the bees And doing it daily Okay, so our first live, um, well, first on the ground podcast where we're not in the Canberra Environment Centre. We're actually sitting in Charles Massey's home um, just outside of Cooma, and it is beautiful. And thank you so much, Charles, for having us at your house. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, I think the Environment Centre's been going a while. It does great stuff. So only too happy to support. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to ask the first question. Let's go. Okay. So can you describe the defining moment in your life where you looked at the world and thought something needs to change now? Yeah, it, it was... I can. It was the 1980s drought. Um, Previous to that, I'd done the first course in holistic thinking in Australia at uh, Human Ecology at ANU. So I guess I was farming traditionally, which was against my own inclinations, always having been a holistic thinker. And um, I thought then, um, in my foolishness, that, uh, that our merino genetics involved in special sheep we were breeding were more important than the landscape. So when the drought, five-year drought it was, down to sort of six, seven inches a year and we decided to defend this asset by keeping the sheep and feeding them. But that meant the landscape was belted. And um, at the end of that, as I saw dust blowing, it was sort of an epiphany. I realised I was doing the wrong thing and that was against my own heart and inclination. So that was the shift. How old were you when that happened, Charles? Uh, I had to take over the farm when I was 22 when my father... Big heart attacks. I would have been about um, late twenties. Yeah, yeah, right. So it it took a few years to get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it depends where you where you define there. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess um, there is this beautiful way that you've written about and, and talked to lots of people about this regenerative form of farming where you're working with nature rather than working against it, which I guess our 
traditional industrial farming method has been very much about trying to control nature, right? And dominate and pulverise. Yeah, so look, at decades is the answer really rather than just a few years. It uh, took a while to um, change the whole structure of the farm and what we were doing. You mentioned in that answer just before about um, going against your nature, the grain of thinking of holistically, like holistic thinking. What does holistic thinking mean? It's um, in today's terms, having gone back to university in my late 50s to do a PhD and in the interim since I was at uh, ANU in the 70s, we'd had the whole computer era which led really to an understanding of complex adaptive systems, which is how big systems work. And um, that wasn't around when I was doing human ecology. But I always thought that as opposed to reductionist thinking, uh, simplifying everything down to a few elements, that the world, society, nature works in an integrated uh, iterative way and um, so that's really what holism is. It's, it's being able to th think the big picture rather than a, a reductionist way and it's really a, a different worldview of, of thinking compared to say the modern economic world and uh, reductionist economics and, and even you know a reductionist science. So explain what that means when you're working on a farm. I wonder, yeah that's a good question. Um, and that's what regenerative agriculture is. In fact, I now define regenerative agriculture in terms of complex adaptive systems. So I, I see my role as a manager of landscapes um, and animals and everything else um, as utilising those practices um, to regenerate the key landscape functions that allows them to self-organise back to health. In other words, to, to use the emergent properties that lie within. Um, in other words, to self-heal. Because nature's got this extraordinary history of co-evolution with, you know, soil bugs and plants and, and all the other uh, animals and uh, entities. And um, they've co-evolved to work together uh, for the benefit of health and that landscape. Industrial ag has totally suppressed and simplified and we can start enabling that self-organising capacity. That's, um, and so therefore from that comes an understanding of what holistic means. It means to have the humility, um, which modern, a lot of reductionist science doesn't have, to stand back and say, well, um, whatever you want to call it, Mother Nature, which is, you know, about 3.8 billion years of life, uh, has that systems worked out and, and we've just got to enable her to do what she's so good at. Mm. What does that mean for the food consumer um, in Canberra, the person buying the food? How does that relate to the work that's being done to farm with nature rather than against it? That is a fantastic question and probably one of the most vital um, because what modern agriculture has done is simplify systems so that uh, the key nutrients that we've co-evolved for, getting back to this co-evolution thing, um, aren't getting into our food and that's happening through a number of ways. So if you think about um, a healthy soil has an extraordinary amount of soil biology and it's, it's, it's the main source. What, what that soil biology like uh, root fungus, microhousal fungi and bacteria and other critters they have a partnership with the plants. The plants photosynthesize, which 
and release root, uh, root sugars into the soil, or exudates. And, and things like uh, microhousal fungi, root fungi, which is you'll find in all healthy soils, um, that's their food, but they, they have a symbiotic partnership with the plants. So their, their job in exchange for getting that food is to go off and access the nutrients. And they have these micro feeding tubes called hyphae. And in a cubic metre of healthy soil, there might be 20,000 kilometres of these microtubes all working away to bring food into the plant, which we then eat. 20,000 kilometres? 20,000 kilometres. That's micro. It is. It's hard to comprehend. It's been calculated a few times. Now, if you look at an industrial soil, you spray herbicides on it, you, you, you dump heavy loads of uh, fertiliser on it, uh, and you're growing monocultures. That symbiotic, healthy, macro function of the soils doesn't exist. So those plants are not accessing, because they've got no biology to do it, the tens of thousands of nutrients, micronutrients, phytochemicals that we've co-evolved for in Africa for our human health. Instead, they're basically, uh, the, those plants in that situation are like drug addicts looking up, waiting for the next dose of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, whatever. And so that has huge implications for our immune system, our physiological function, how our gut microbiome works. And that's, that's just one factor of, of the worst aspects of industrial ag. The second one is throwing on herbicides. And we now know from work by wonderful medicos like Zach Bush in America has come out of autism to look at the gut microbiome. Glyphosate has horrendous, uh, i.e. Roundup, the main, the biggest... Uh, largest volume of use of herbicide in the world, millions of tonnes a year. It has horrendous impact on our gut in all sorts of ways without getting into what they are technically. But uh, what I think is interesting when you look at graphs post the Second World War, what's called the Great Acceleration, which has led to the current global earth system crisis, from about the late 50s on, all human use of resources went up exponentially doesn't matter if it's the way we've dammed water, uh, you know, the amount of um, fossil fuels, chemical, a uh, whole range of things, uh, socially and environmentally. And um, that's called the Great Acceleration. Um, every single graph for about 25, 30 um, human uses have gone through the ceiling. What's really interesting, if you look at the graph of diseases that weren't heard of in the early 20th century, but by about a 15-year delay to that great acceleration that I'm talking about, they show exactly the same exponential rise, the ADHDs, the cancers, the autisms, and so on and so on. And, and so that's not by accident. <laughs> it's, it's what we've done to the soil and our food and what we've either put into it or we've taken out of, of what's coming through healthy food. So for consumers in a place like Canberra to buy healthy food, it's about the best thing you can do for yourself and your family into the future because um, uh, if you want to go down to some of the big um, supermarkets and buy crap food empty of nutrients, well then uh, you're rolling the dice on your, your own and your family's health. And, and in addition to that, the food that's coming off those healthy landscapes is food that's helping heal the planet. The industrial food um, is, is destroying the planet by destroying a lot of the Earth systems that sustain it. So it uh, might seem a small decision, but it's, it's huge. Yeah, because 
even though we know this information, 99% of our food is farmed in this industrial method still, would you say? Um, depends where you live. Um, in Australia, yeah, if you go to the big supermarkets. Um, but the latest statistics by United Nations FAO, Food and Agricultural Organisation, about 70 to 75% of the world's food comes off five-acre farms and less, peasant agriculture. Now, the big end of town, the big uh, mon- uh, multinationals who flog the, the products make us think that we're totally dependent on them. That's bullshit. Um, it, it's, it, it, and a lot of that peasant agriculture is it's still organic, mm. most of it, and um, despite what the Green Revolution tried to do in destroying both food and societies in places like India, you don't hear that side of the Green Revolution story. But, um, but in Australia, yes, the industrial world where this huge escalation of human diseases is occurring, um, yeah, it's, um, it's mainly the industrial foods that's, that, that are in those economies. So we have a resurgence in small farms happening um, around our bigger cities. Is that perhaps the best place for people to buy their food from? Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, there are some really big regenerative farms. Um, one of the best has uh, evolved a world breakthrough revolution in Australia called Natural Intelligence Agriculture. They're, they're, it's so profitable for these people in very marginal, almost semi-arid country in Western Australia, family called the Haggerty's. Um, what are they growing? Well, they're growing cereals and canola and, and they've, it's so profitable they've gone from a 600-acre farm with debt to about 50,000 acres, no debt. Um, and they are growing all those crops but grazing at the same time because that's, that's another story. But uh, our cereal crops were really only weedy grasses when they were domesticated and they, they need ruminant animals to be grazing them for full health. So what they've done is get rid of all the industrial inputs and the, at the point of sowing the seeds, they inject worm juice, which is full of biology, at the earthworm juice, vermiculture, with compost extract, which is the food for them. And um, it's leading to most remarkable results in resilience to damage from water and frost, but healthy food and, uh, and they're grazing ruminant sheep over it as as they co-evolved in the what's called the, um, the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East where those plants and animals were domesticated. Mm. So I guess the message is we go against the way nature's evolved things, well, then we pay the consequences. So how do people know what it is they're buying, like where it has come from? I heard a story as we were driving down here that you might have stayed with a very, um, very famous person um, that I have quite a crush on, um, the um, one of the founders of Patagonia, yeah. I believe. No, we were – that's right. And uh, I think I know where you're leading to. <laughs> you know, look, that, that was a privilege. It's an old mountain climber who oh. bought a lot of Chenard's early gear. Amazing. Um, I was asked – and we actually stayed with uh, Yvonne and his wife, Melinda. And um, so I worked with head office and, and spoke to a lot of their – a number of their stores in California and up at Seattle. And – uh, it was interesting because while I was there, they were having their first meeting of their new food division, which was in reaction to what the big um, supermarket chains like Walmart were doing in, in America. They, they, they'd seen how organics were going. So they moved in and uh, took over the space. We were still growing basically monoculture, which is not organic, by its very nature, it's what we've just talked about. It's not 
complexity and, and diversity and, and they were grabbing the brand. And, and Patagonia hired the, uh, the American who had actually founded the organic industry decades ago. And he was coming in and, and uh, they were workshopping that day and uh, I was able to present to them, not that I know as much as he did, but today they were then, that, that was the counter move against really the prostitution of, of the organic brand by the big end of town. And where have they gone with this? What, what's, what's Oh, the it's developing. It's, it's developing and it's like their clothing and their climbing and other gear. It's, it's fully uh, um, ethical in every, every little way they do things. Yeah. And so the idea is that they're developing a label or a classification system so people understand what it is they're buying. Absolutely. And, and comes back to your question of where can people buy things. Um, And I was starting to answer that by saying you've got the Haggerty's with big, big area, but uh, the, the small farms, the peri-urban farms close to the city where you, you, uh, urban people can access farmer's markets or go to um, a, a place like Ceres in Melbourne, which is a whole big sort of organic, um, not just a farm, but a, a wonderful educational centre and, and a market. And, um, you know, Canberra has its great farmer's market and, and places like that. If you want to really look after your family, start setting up relationships either through the farmer's market or, or directly with the farms that are close by. And, uh, and the impact on the planet, community and your own family is just enormous. It seems like such a small decision that is so important. And just to hit home, there's a point in your book, Call of the Reed Wobbler, where you talk about the veggie garden paradox, that, um, that farmers would have one veggie patch that they would sell to the supermarkets, well, one big field, and alone a different veggie patch yeah, that they would no, feed their th family with. I'm picking up the train. <laughs> um, so out of that merino business, we built quite a large merino stud. Um, based on this uh, and had quite a different way of doing it traditionally. And so I, 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 at one stage I had probably 150, 200 clients across Australia and I was travelling 70, 80,000 kilometres a year because I, I believe you, you, you look after customer relations in a business. And so often I would pull up to a farm and go in for a cup of tea and they'd have a really healthy organic vegetable garden. A lot of these farmers were... But I was visiting at sheep and and um, crops. So you go through this lovely traditional farming veggie garden, all organic, using your own you know sheep fertilizer or whatever it was. Then we'd go out to hop in a vehicle to go to the sheep yards, and I'd drive through industrial crops. And behind the shed, there might be you know dozens and dozens of chemical drums piled up. And you know, and I was there myself, actually. We, we had a healthy veggie garden, but I was still flogging the landscape in my early days. And so it's, it's this paradox, the veggie garden paradox, that uh, the household, particularly driven by women, knew that healthy food came out of your veggie garden and yet we were prepared to grow food that went to a market at the industrial way. And so it just shows you how we compartmentalise and don't think through, things through. Yeah, well, essentially the farmers wouldn't eat the food that they're selling to the supermarkets was what I took out of it. Yeah, I don't think they consciously knew there's anything wrong with it. It's just that that was where their income came from and you ship it off in bulk and, um, and you don't have a hand grinder to grind up your, you know, your, your porridge or whatever it is. But uh, it, was, it's, it was more that disconnect between um, the two, even though 
somewhere deep down subconsciously they knew one was better. Mm. That uh, well, I was just going to say I think that disconnect, you, you've written a lot about this disconnect previously which I think was where Ryan was going to go with his next question also. Um, you've talked a lot about how we've lost touch with the land and we manipulate the earth to our own ends. We dominate it and are ultimately destroying it. Um, Whereas Aboriginal people had a completely different relationship with land and I think you've taken on board or you've really learnt a lot from Indigenous culture um, and you've, you're applying that also to how you have a relationship with the land. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and it continues to widen. Um, I mean, I'm privileged to work with a local Garrigo elder. Comes up here, we've run cool um, burning days, whatever you want to call them, traditional cultural burning. Uh, and I'm doing a few other things now. Just come back from a trip working with um, some uh, landscape architects, um, and I, I came down to to give um, a perspective uh, with a Barkindji mob on the Lower Murray, who have just been just gained some land, traditional cultural land back after whatever it is, 150 years, uh, which was stolen from them. Um, and so we're, we're, we're laying down some, uh, trying to uh, help them in seeing what enterprises will get them going. They've just received it from the Indigenous Land Corporation. But um, their perspective is, to me, is uh, um, like all in Indigenous peoples, it's, it's the one we have to learn from, that uh, you're only a small part of the system and if you step out of that you'll do damage and there's a humility and there's huge complexity in the... My first chapter in the book was deliberately trying to analyse the worldview of Australian Aboriginal nations because um, it puts it all in perspective, um, connection with nature and respect for it and, and uh, how you work within within her without damaging it. And that connection comes from a knowledge of her, right? Um, I think you've talked about the, the gatherers and the Indigenous uh, women being able to identify all these different food species just in the landscape, which differs greatly to the way we procure our food in cities today. That's right. I mean, the average around the world, it's been studied by anthropologists, the average, well, not the average, I mean, good traditional Indigenous women who do most of the gathering, um, uh, they can identify at least 500 food plants, uh, medicinal plants. Uh, and then there's the other side of that story too. Um, if you think about where we evolved in African savannah um, and, and you've still got the bushmen in, in tougher environment there, uh, they go off hunting meat uh, in inverted brackets. But those animals, and I was privileged to work in, uh, with Professor Fred Preventer from Utah State Uni, who's just retired, but he, he was probably the world expert on grazing animals in, in a truly diverse landscape, which means lots of shrubs, not just grasses. And, and shrubs, which those ruminant animals, deer, you know, primitive sheep, cattle, bison, because of their millions of years of coevolution, they can still detect in the plant chemicals that they need or need or need to avoid. So if if they're lacking, if they've got an intestinal worm attacking them, they know that certain tannins in a plant will, will cure the worms, and so they'll preferentially graze that. If they're lacking another mineral, they'll do the same. And look, quite frankly, having watched um, 
my wife bear three children, um, humans have still got a bit of that too. They'll know when they're <laughs> lacking um, something and it's not an excuse to have a binge on something. <laughs> um, and, and the point I'm, I'm driving towards is that where we evolved in that African landscape, but the meat that we were eating was full of mm. thousands. I mean, there's something like half a million phytochemicals out on the landscape, tannins, phenols, terpenes, all that sort of stuff, all of which animals have learned to avoid or to use. So without getting into the uh, um, controversy of veganism and all that, all, all I would say is that healthy meat of healthy landscapes where animals have long co-evolved to graze and humans have co-evolved to eat that meat because of the phytochemicals in it, let's not cut off our nose to spite our face by reacting to some of the bad stuff in industrial ag. I mean, we are evolved long time to eat healthy meat off those grazing landscapes um, because of the phytochemicals, nutrients and minerals in them. So uh, that's also part of the story. So we've also... Um Maybe it's, it's something to also that we've lost touch with growing up on, in nature and growing up in farms. Um, you grew up here where we are today. This property has been in your family since 1928, I mm. believe. Mm. Um, and you grew up running around with the trees and the birds and the bees mm. and doing mm. all sorts of things. What do you think now about kids, younger kids today um, and their perhaps... Yeah. Lack of exposure to that. Yeah, I, I think it's tragic. Um, yeah, I was privileged. I was an only child and my mother died when I was young. So I, I really had, I was roaming pretty free for, from the age of six or more onwards. Um, and that's just nothing but a privilege. And so I became a keen naturalist, obviously. Um, and now, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Planet Ark, I'm not too sure of the latest statistics. When I wrote that book a few years ago, they surveyed 10-year-olds and 6-year-olds, obviously, and they're urban children. I don't, I think probably Sydney. I think they're based in Sydney. And the stats were frightening. Something like um, only one child in four under the age of six has ever climbed a tree or a rock. And uh, uh, the amount of time they spend in front of devices as opposed to playing outside. You know, only one in ten uh, in a lot of those suburbs plays out in nature. So that has huge implications for a species that's evolved in nature, for mental health, for physical health. You know, that what's really intriguing if you look at um, evolutionary biology and some of the top professors I've read is that all our systems are designed to be challenged. If you don't run and jump, you're not going to develop strength in your long bones. If you don't have long-distance vision, you're not going to develop long eyesight. That's why so many children across many more urbanised cultures in the world have got glasses today. And, and if, if, you don't, if you're not crawling around as a baby in the dirt and ingesting bacteria, you're not going to develop a, 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 a resilient gut microbiome. So these children are being deprived with mental and physical health consequences to an alarming extent, I think. And uh, uh, it's just sad. And so somehow we've got to be able to get them off the bloody devices and get them outside in nature and whether schools do that, you know. Schools can grow. I mean, I know Melbourne had a wonderful program of having every primary school with a school veggie garden. 
Not only were the kids getting into it, but at lunchtime they would actually eat the greens because they'd grown them themselves. So there's lots of things we can do, but if we don't start doing something pretty quickly, that um, those, those devices, whether it's TV or the others, it's not doing our brains or our bodies any good. Yeah, we wonder why we don't have strong mental health and why these things go wrong when we've essentially taken our species out of its natural environment in many cases. Of course, that's going to upset the balance in our minds. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And um, you noticed a lot of the same with farmers, right, a, a kind of cognitive dissonance between their love of the land and the way they were treating it. And um, I guess it's... it's after reading a lot about regenerative agriculture and reading in the book Drawdown about the ways that we can use agriculture, if done correctly, to actually help us solve the climate crisis, it seems like a lot of our problems in society, be it greenhouse gas emissions, be it mental health crises, be it physical health crises, can all be tied back to this treating, working with nature rather than against it. It's like this. It's at the crux of all of our problems, I would say. It is, and I'd like to address that, but I'll just come back to an interesting anecdote. One, one of the clients I used to class sheep for, he's a good stockman, so he's on a horse a fair bit and walks a lot, as you do when you're working animals. Um, and they had, I think it was a 20 or a 30 year reunion of one of the ag colleges, which will remain nameless, but it's not because this is derogatory to the college. Um, and he went along, pretty much a full roll-up. And he said, I could have put on a sheep drafting gate those who are big croppers and those who are the, uh, the um, guys working with the livestock. Because these days, modern cropping means you're sitting up in a big machine, you've got a TV and a monitor and, and uh, you just drive around all day. And he said, those guys were a good 15, 20 kilos heavier than the, the stockman was sort of farming more traditionally. The, the other thing that I really wanted to ask is about so Julian Cribb has just released a new book as well talking about the destruction of chemicals and how it could almost be a bigger problem for our age than climate change, as in the destruction of our earth by chemicals. I'm interested to know, and I know that um, we are slowly changing, but uh, we've noticed in talking to lots of people that incumbent industries that... Um, they hijack our decision-making processes and our democracy, and um, we see that very clearly in fossil fuel industries. But perhaps not talked about as often is the the traditional agriculture, the um, you know the insecticides, the the herbicides, the pesticides, and how much control they have over our lives through the way we farm, the food we eat. It's easy to forget in the city that our farmers manage the majority of our land. They care for our land. And they're being told the wrong story. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the political dimension is it's all about power. So the biggest corporate organisations in the world, they've got that way because they're totally ruthless, uh, your big pharmaceuticals, your big chemical companies, your big food companies, your big food trading companies, or other resource trading companies. So that's, that's huge power. That influence the, the political climate. I mean, if you look at the uh, reactionary Australian governance at the moment, um, it's predicated on this uh, industrial world and economic rationalism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it. So that government attitude flows through the departments, 
flows through to the universities, flows through to the ag colleges, flows through to extension. Uh, um, but now we don't have departments of agriculture and extension officers. If we did, they probably still would have been more industrial. The, the extension agents in the field now for chemical agriculture are chemical representatives. So that, if you just think about education, um, the, there's only one university course in Australia teaching Regen Ag. And by the way, it, its intake in first year last year was the biggest intake of all agriculture's biggest first year intake. So there's something going on, but the rest of them... And look, I, I was asked... I've given lots of lectures to about eight or nine unis now and I went down, I won't say where it was, and gave a talk to a university, uh, the environmental course, people asked me, Sitting in the audience were four or five, uh, they were all blokes as it turned out, who were doing the agriculture course at this university. So I spoke about things we'd been speaking about, healthy soil and root fungus and stuff. And they, in chatting to them later, later, they came up to me and said, you're saying stuff that we're not hearing in our ag course. So our, our soil lecturer actually told us our role is to kill all the biology that we can then control the inputs. I nearly fell off my chair. That's one of the leading ag courses in Australia. So that power flows right down to those levels and it's to do with paradigms, it's to do with job protection, it's to do with government policy, Department of Ag policy, the whole box and dice and, and let alone our abysmal agricultural politicians who I once wrote a book about how they destroyed uh, the wool industry, a $20 billion disaster. Well, they're, they're always reactionary, they're always behind, not at the forefront and, and so they are even at the very highest, the, the national level, NFF, um, they will say, oh, yeah, Regen Ag's important, but basically they're sponsors of some of the big chemical companies and and, uh, and uh, we know which side of the, 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 um, of the, of the aisle they're, they're standing on. So how do we change this? How do we, how do we get um, more people focused if the system is so all-pervasive all, um, all at the moment, geared against what we should be doing, how do we change that narrative? Great question. Um, well, I think the more, just take one step, the more the truth on food, food nutrient density, what's in food that's harmful, more that gets out, the better. Um, on the ground, the growth in farmer's markets uh, and, and similar things, you know, CSA schemes, food box schemes, whatever, around the world, it's... it's, it's it's taking off. Um, the adoption of Regen Ag, I would say, is certainly out of the... Uh, it's, it's now into the early majority, I'd say 15 to 20% adoption and accelerating. So that's changing at that level. But it's got to start um, at the community level, you know, turning streets into green zones and backyard chooks and, and, and uh, community gardens and, um, and right down to the school level, getting, getting right from primary through educated, uh, you know, the top three subjects in my view should be English, maths and uh, earth, earth science and understanding. I mean, because if that one fails, we're all gone. T tell us about, um, you're going to speak to, you're going to come back to this point earlier on um, about the systems that regulate earth and yeah. earth science. Do you want to talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, because that's the big one confronting us. I don't think most people realise, as Hawken and others are saying, Paul Hawkins quite adamant, but so are a lot of the climate scientists. We've only got one generation to turn this around, 25 years, essentially. That's how big this crisis is. 
So uh, uh, stuff I often show in my talks is uh, I start with the blue-green planet, that amazing photo of Apollo 11, wasn't it? Which for the first time got everyone saying, shit, um, here's this blue-green planet and there's only one. We, we now know there's only one in the entire universe. And it's four and a half billion years old. Um, but um, it's got life on it because of a freakish accident about 3.8 billion years ago. There's no other planet has got life. There's no other blue-green planet. And through that, from that three, last 3.8 billion years, this complex life has formed. But in the process of forming and evolving, it's created conditions around this planet um, that sustains life, that protects it from the outside influences. So it's, it's hard to get your mind around those facts alone. And so what we now have, are, 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 depending on how you divide it, but basically 10 Earth systems that sustain that planet in a healthy way. And, uh, you know, obviously climate is one, um, biodiversity, water, um, land systems, the nitrogen phosphorus cycle. Uh, healthy ocean because the more carbon we release, the more acidic it's getting. And, and so what's now clear is that industrial ag is one of the, if not the major factor in destabilising seven of those ten systems. Flip that. Um, regenerative agriculture is one of the best, if not the best methods of reversing these planetary trends. So that's why I, I continue to do talks and and uh, carry on um, after my book because there's, there's a. I just can't see why people don't realise that this is a planetary emergency. It's, it's ten times, hundred times worse than a world war, mm. and we're not on an emergency footing. And we've got these pathetic politicians who can only see a dollar sign in front of their glasses instead of uh, having the guts to really uh, make change. But let's not go there. <laughs> it's too depressing. Oh, it really hits home how radical a move it is to grow your own food, to support organic, biodynamic, regenerative agriculture. It's not like we talked about before. It's a simple decision where you shop, but it's huge. It's, the um, implications are the huge. The implications yeah. are massive. It's yeah. huge and it's exciting. Imagine yeah. you can get every kid to say, do you want to save the planet today so you, you're going to be around in 50 years? Go and grow your own healthy food and, and get a neighbourhood garden going. Grow some native shrubs. I mean, there's another thing that links to that. Uh, and Australia wouldn't be far behind. Um, they've calculated that the urban lawn in America, if you look at the fertiliser, monoculture plants going on, the water, etc., and the pesticides... It's equivalent to the sixth or seventh biggest crop in America. Imagine if we started to change all our suburban gardens from those monocultural lawns, as pretty as they are, to native shrubs or veggie gardens and, and the impact on biodiversity and on healthy food. I mean, so many of the solutions reside in our own hands in a way. Now, look, I know people are busy and they're living in flats. You can't condemn everyone for it. But those that have got viable, as Canberra does, although the trend everywhere now is to smaller and smaller green, green space in the new buildings. But anyone with a healthy backyard and uh, time on the weekend or afternoon to relieve the stresses from work or something, it's one of the best things you can do. You may not be able to go out and regenerate thousands of acres like a regen farm might do, but, gee, you can play your part in your urban backyard as well as your shopping decisions. Well, especially so where we've taken away so much of the habitat for our pollinators and our 
native birds. And I think the key word that people need to remember is diversity, isn't it? It's not even just about growing food. It's about growing a diverse range of, of plants. And that's what you're getting at on a large scale, but it can also translate to a small scale. Absolutely right. Yeah, that, that word diversity is so crucial. And mm. uh, we've simplified that. I mean, we've all heard about the, uh, the alarming study out of Germany last year where they'd 40 years ago, I think it was, they um, sampled uh, natural areas, not farmland. And um, I think uh, the study last year back in those same plots is that the insect population in Germany has crashed 30, 40%. I forget the exact stats, but it's pretty frightening because they're our pollinators and they're our defenders against, uh, you know, other forms of disease and stuff. I want to switch tack for just a sec. Um, so there's another um, one of my projects in my day job is on establishing or encouraging circular fashion to take hold. And the big thing with circular fashion, well, one of the key underlying principles, I guess, with circular fashion is regenerative agriculture. Mm. Um, now you with your wool, um, this I think is an awesome example of circular fashion in mm. practice. Could you talk to us a bit about your wool and the farm? Sure. I mean, interestingly, I just did an interview into Milan, not into Milano, not long ago with um, international wool people on circular fashion. As to how I didn't know that. This uh, is great. <laughs> as, as to how important Region Ag was, because I was, so I was it is, and, and I was on international wool boards for a few years. Um, part of which came out of learning the hard way trying to run a, uh, an elite knitting mill when you didn't have the skills. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we can deliver uh, healthy natural fibres, uh, like the wool off this place. Um, there's no chemical used on this place. M- maybe just a little bit um, for some of the bad weeds. We can't, there's no other chemical to control and we can't get out mechanically. But it's, 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 if there is, it's, it's very minute. Um, the animals virtually get no health treatment and we've evolved this through molecular genetics, this lovely natural fibre. And um, the Italians almost always buy it um, because I won't go into the previous history but we, we, I was involved in forming a company that tried to change the whole um, almost socialistic scheme we had to market and sell wool. And so we went straight to the Italians and, we, and uh, then into England to the dyers and the weavers and the garment makers and, and proved by about 40% better efficiencies just how good this stuff is if you're prepared to get out of an industrial system. And just, you know, in a, in a negative word uh, for industrial there. Um, so if we can get our, our natural fibres, I mean, what's really interesting at the moment worldwide, the synthetic companies are arguing they're more natural than um, the natural fibres. Now, I know cotton puts on a lot of chemicals, um, which leaves us open to that attack, but talk about hypocrisy, yeah. uh, using a, uh, a non-renewable resource and saying you're more natural. Um, maybe they're arguing it's come from nature, oil or something, but uh, the, conse- <laughs> <laughs> the consequences of uh, using oil, we know what's doing to the planet. So I think this concept of circular fashion, um, not just the way it's produced here on farm. I mean, we're confident that we send off a fantastic organic fibre with superb qualities. It's non, non-prickly to the skin because of the genetics that went behind it. Um, but um, the recycling of garments, is, is uh, which was shown on this 
our international world secretariat film is 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 horrendous um both synthetics but also the natural fibers so there's a huge businesses now evolving about uh recycling um used garments and if we can cotton that's a probably a bad term <laughs> bad term for wool grower cotton on but if we can um <laughs> log in to those companies that are into the circular fashion thing. Uh, that's another way that a consumer can play a huge role. Buy natural fibres and if, see if you can find the, the, the branded companies that are really recycling it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to, to fix those clothes and as going back to Patagonia as mentioned before, to support companies that are yeah. even big companies that are actually saying if your clothes get broken or get a hole yeah. in it, send it back. We'll fix it free of charge and they're the companies you should support. And, and it's also how society should live. I mean, you know, you go back three, four hundred years ago before modern industrial enterprises, I mean, you would have taken it to the local tailor or something for a repair rather than chucking it in the bin because it's got a few holes in yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's going back to the old recycling, thinking about the earth first, yeah. Yeah. A yeah. um, couple of questions about your book. Because we've mentioned the book, mm. the book, several times. We haven't actually named the book. Um, my first question, did you ever think you'd write a book? Um, yeah, for some reason I was bitten by the writing bugs. So, you know, I started with short stories and lots of reject slips in the drawer and ended up getting a few in the bulletin literary supplement, which I can't tell you why I was interested in writing. I guess as an only child you do a lot of reading. Maybe that was it. Um, so I ended, I've ended up having few books published, Reno History and Exposing the Biggest Business Disaster in Australia, which they didn't want exposed, um, which had its cost. Um, and then I did the PhD on regenerative ag, which led to my current book, Call of the Reed Warbler. Uh, and, and actually at the end of the, uh, towards the end of the year, I'll, I've got a children's book on being done by the National Library, which we, we found one of Australia's rarest lizards here, little um, uh, earless dragon, and um, we've written a story about that for kids. So that's coming out as well. But the book we're talking about is the one on Regen Ag uh, called um, The Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth. Yeah. Is the reed warbler your favourite bird? No, look, I was always keen on orthology, but... Um, the, the title came from a friend of mine lives just out, um, not far out of Canberra, and he was, was once a senior economist in Australia and, and bought this farm and was regenerating it with grazing and, and uh, Peter Andrews' natural sequence farming approach. And uh, he said, I'd love to show you. So I, I stayed with him one night and we drove out and drove past the neighbour's place, which was traditional. It was a pretty dry season. The place was flogged into the earth and um, there was salt and dry land salinity appearing and the creek was just dry and eroded. But through the fence was this sort of green country of my friends and uh, we drove down near the creek and um, the creek was running and there's about two or 300 metres of really fresh green coming up from it and a little patch of reeds, no bigger than this room. And... Uh, the reeds would have been brought in by a water bird as he regenerated the creek and it was probably 150 years since they were there. And while we're talking, this reed warbler, because I've, I've been a keen ornithologist so I knew the call, they're very hard to find, but he started to sing. 
And I thought, wow, what a metaphor for uh, regeneration. So that's where the title came from. Tim Flannery has said this about your book. Um, the Call of the Reed Warbler is a brutally honest book, an account of personal redemption following generations of sin. Oof, that's a pretty, that's a pretty <laughs> heavy quote there. Can you tell our listeners, for those of you who don't know about the book, like, can you just talk to, talk to the listeners about what the book's about? Yeah, look, it came out of a PhD, but I knew I, I didn't want to write an academic book. And um, as a writer, um, we humans are made for story. That's what grabs our heart. So I knew I had to turn it into a book of stories as well as writing about um, the new, as you gathered from this talk, the new exciting field of regenerative agriculture, which I believe has some of the best solutions to our planetary and human health crisis. So uh, it was almost like teaching a uni course but making it accessible to your average reader. So I knew I had to sprinkle stories all the way through, um, my own mistakes but other experiences, but wonderful other stories. And, and I had to shape it around a teaching um, approach, which was how, the, how our landscapes work, which you can simplify to five key landscape functions. So the, f the first part of the book is describing those functions but through story and then examples of people specifically regenerating them which knocks on to the others. So that was the approach. And then the last part of the book is really getting into the bigger issues. Um, landscapes, the planet, human health, etc. So it was, it was, I designed it to be readable. Um, and I guess um, you, ca you can't fluke timing in all things, business and including publication. And, and it obviously just press the right buttons at the right time because it's been reprinted 15 or 16 times now, I think. Yeah, it's a hugely important book. I think the information is everyone should know it. And I'd say the reason you became a writer is because you have this beautiful information to share and these stories to spread out amongst us because... We are in a crisis. It's not just an environmental crisis, as you say. It's a human health crisis, yeah. and we have the answers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I guess, that's what keeps you motivated, 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 <laughs> motivated as a writer. Um, if, if you're passionate about what you're writing about, uh, that comes through. But um, yeah, it's my, my my form of writing is pretty inefficient. I usually have to end up culling at least half into the bin. But I guess. It's like woodworking or sculpting. Maybe that hones the final shape. Yeah. Uh, we really appreciate you sharing these stories with us, but I think we owe it to you to um, ask you the questions that you actually prepared for. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not, not easy either. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start. Um, congratulations. You have just been elected the president of the world. Very worthy choice. Yes, um, I think so. What is the one change you try to implement first? Well, I had to restrain myself on what I'd like to do to some. <laughs> uh, so as the planetary crisis is our number one existential threat, I would mandate a shift to a sustainable, renewable, global economy within five years. Energy, food, consumables, transport. Done. Perfect. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the future. Um, we're talking 2030. What do you see around you? in 2030? Yeah, another good question. I, I, I took it from an Australian perspective. Um, two scenarios. 
if we don't change and the present political leadership uh, in particular remains, then, and because things will come rapidly unstuck, unstuck I see raging pandemics, huge climate, political refugee invasion and social disruption, even violence, violent extreme weather events, storm floods, far greater droughts and food shortages, cyclones, and that's global. But if we do change, what I see is some, still some of the above because of the lag effects of what we've done to the planet. It's going to take time to wash out. But also I see 100% renewable economy, our nation 100% food and energy self-sufficient, farms, urban backyards, schools, town, city gardens, a nation focused on planetary, regional and suburb survival, thriving and community. I see abandonment of harmful consumer culture, no plastics, etc. Recyclable clothes coming back. I see all bloody junk food and sugar-driven sugar foods and aggressive multinationals banned. For schools, I see the main curriculum, along with language and maths, focuses on planetary, regional and local health and community. I think we should choose that second option, hey, Julie? Totally, totally. <laughs> I think it's a better one. Yeah. <laughs> way better, way better. Um, who are your environmental heroes? Oh, I mean, I, I ran out of pages when I started to list them, but I'll, I'll just, <laughs> the key ones I guess I've just jotted down are... Uh, Obviously, Rachel Carson had a big impact. Uh, Wendell Berry, who I've had the privilege of spending a day with. Aldo Leopold, Paul Hawkins, right up there. St Francis of Assisi. James Lovelock with his Gaia thing. Uh, and contemporary thinkers like Wes Jackson, Fritjof Capra, Vandana Shiva's fantastic. Uh, E.F. Schumacher, Small is Beautiful. In Australia, the poets like Les Murray, but also American Gary Snyder, Mary White. But I've also listed, I mean, that's dozens of others, but I've also listed my environmental heroes, earthworms, fungi, birds, um, sugar gliders, marsupial diggers of fungi, river red guns. I love that. I love, yeah, I really love that. What I also like about the people you've listed, like when you've listed a poet, um, Les Murray, like I think that... Um, that ability to get people to dream and to, you know, really feel the earth and feel what nature has provided for us yeah. is so incredibly critical. And I think that's really just genius of you to to incorporate that into your environmental heroes. Yeah, and Gary Snyder in America has written some gorgeous stuff as well. I mean, there's plenty of other good parts. Some of the... Uh, I was lucky when I first left uni in the early 70s, I spent time in Iatsis, the you know, Indigenous... and, and some of their song cycle poetry, uh, some of their poetry is just mind-blowing. Mm. The, 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 uh, the rhythmical repetition of, you know, the, um, the magpie geese it come down in the seas and, and land on the lagoon. It's on the lagoon that they come down one by one. That sort of stuff, it's just painted the picture better than most modern poets can. This um, it reminds me of a... A quote that I found of yours talking about how one's heart also needs to be involved. Mm. I think that's just. You guys have done your research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's lots for people to draw on there, our listeners, is to, to seek inspiration, to reconnect with nature through poetry, through knowledge, 
What's your one great tip uh, for being more environmentally aware? Buy local food. I've actually chucked in a few that goes with it. Please, please. Get a good bicycle. Walk everywhere. Build food gardens at school and in your backyard. Read the great environmental thinkers. Shift to Regen Ag. Perfect. And now do you have one final slogan or quote or mantra that you live by that we're going to leave our listeners with? Yeah, look, we've touched on it, but uh, I guess what I've jotted down... um, We live on the only blue-green planet in the universe that has life on it. It's a functional blue-green planet because of life. So unless we want to destroy this unbelievably beautiful, functional and precious accident, then we need to radically change our consumptive, destructive, unnatural behaviour and move from extraction and destruction to renewal, regeneration, recycling. Beautiful. Thank you, Charles. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been no, an absolute you. pleasure. Um, you've done your homework and, um, you know, all power to you guys. It's a good program. Local environment heroes Saving the trees and the bees And doing it daily